Father, we just, we just thank you. We thank you for just an opportunity to be able to worship you, Lord, um, just collectively. You know, your spirit's pressed upon my heart. Uh, just, uh, just this, that it's the Psalms. You know, it says, deep cries out to deep. And I know that in the last three or four weeks as, as I've been studying that you've made yourself just deeper to me. And I would pray just like in Luke twelve twelve, where it says that I don't need to worry about what I'm going to say, that the Spirit will give me the words and the time that I need them. And I would just pray, Lord, that your word is true and, and it would just be here now, that you'd open the ears and the hearts and the minds of the people here. Lord, that I would just stand on your truth and, and be able to convey as much of your love as I can. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't know why I have a nipple cover here. That might be prophetic in itself. Probably because I'll, maybe I'll be crying a little bit later. I don't know. So, well, I'm Chris. Uh, usually I don't introduce who I am, but we have some new people here today. Um, I've got uh, my wife's in back, Kristen, and i got six kids. So if I do start crying, it's probably because of the kids. Anyway, so, well, what I'm going to share with you guys today, you know, it's the Easter season. Um, you know, the little video there that, that I showed um, really sparks something in me. Um, what it really does for me, though, is it does this. It, it makes, you know, the last two or three Easter's maybe, you know, uh, Easter is, you know, we we're always involved in our Easter play at the Freedom Center. So, you know, you really got into it, so to speak. But after a few years, you know, it kind of became old hat. Um, and how many of you know that Jesus is an old hat? You know, he's, he's so current, he's so relevant. Um, but, you know, I needed something to kind of spark me, you know. And, uh, and something has. Um, it's made uh, God bigger. It's made Jesus even more important. Um, it's made it really scary, you know. Uh, was Keith Enberg hanging out here? Oh, there he is. You know, I was, while uh, Dave was speaking about the storm, you know, and how true that really is, um, I remembered when you prayed that, you know, God would give you his heart. And I don't think I can do that yet because I just, I just, I can't. I can't control it. And that's the hardest thing. Is I'm afraid of what his heart looks like. I'm afraid of what we do to it. The joys, the triumphs, the trials, the disappointments. You know, the pain that we may cause him. You know, I don't want to experience that. Because that's really scary for me. But in the last three or four weeks, though, that's kind of changed, though, for me. Um... And it is, just as the scripture says, deep crying out to deep. That's what he wants from us, right? So I'm going to begin. You know, it's the Easter season. Um, you know, what really sparks my interest in that little video is this is why did, why, 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 why was Christ killed? Why was he tortured? Why was he beaten? Why was he bruised? You know, um, I got saved like uh, seven, eight years ago. 
I guess eight, maybe almost nine now. And why? Why did Jesus, why did this one man go through what he did? And why did the very people that he came to save, why did they kill him? You know? And I think about the, the kids that I, I help teach in youth, you know? Those are really important questions. Why? Those are ones to bring up. You know, and you have to grasp. And then I realized that it's just not a kid asking why. It's a lot of adults that ask why. So that's what we're going to go over today. I found a, uh, a quote. It said that uh, it's been said that if Jesus had never existed, he could have never been invented. I mean, he, he, was, he was just so out of the box. I mean, his ministries were so complex, so chaotic. Um, you know, I wrote a couple things down, you know, that he was completely what the world needed, but opposite of what they wanted. Right, that a God that loves us more than we could ever know to save us from eternal separation from Him, and He was sent His Son, our Savior, to show us that, to show us that all-encompassing love—the love that I talked about with Keith, with His heart, you know. And I'll, I'll get into that a little bit more. But gosh, it's just so powerful. Um, and I love how God sent Jesus. He sent him insignificant, it says. Uh, in If you guys got your Bibles, um, Isaiah 53, verse 2. I'm going to do the second half first, and then I'm going to do the first half of that next. It says, There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance and nothing to attract him to, or us to him. So he was probably like me, you know, just average height. Actually, two inches below average. <laughs> killing me up here. Uh, you know, average hair, you know, average weight, you know, average speed. Eh, maybe I'm a little faster than most guys, except Shane. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, just average guy, nothing to attract him. He wasn't the chiseled Jesus, I think, that we see, you know, on a, on a portrait with the flowing hair and the piercing blue eyes and the big beard, you know. And I mean, I don't think that was him. I think he looked like me. You know, I mean, you can overlook the guy, right? Everybody else overlooked him, you know. Uh, But I love what the first part of the scripture says. He said, he grew up in the Lord's presence. A tender shoot sprouting from from a root and dry and sterile ground. He grew up from nothing into something. I loved it that God formed him for us. God breathed, and there he was. I mean, think about planting a seed. I mean, if the ground's dry and it's sterile, nothing's going to come from it. And that's how God had to bring Jesus. He had to bring him into nothing. And that's exactly where he put him. You know, in his youth, he spent his time in, a, in you know, Nazarene, or Nazareth, uh, a little town uh, in the Galilee region. Um, and they were known as, I'm going to put it to you in your terms, or in my terms, I guess. It was like the ultimate redneck suburb. You know, I mean, I know. I got a couple of those redneck friends, you know. So, I mean, I know. I know. Sometimes I'm one of them, you know. You see me with my camo on all the time. My wife says it's not a fashion statement. I said it just depends on who you're around. Then it is a fashion statement, right? Right, see? That's what I'm talking about right there, right? So, but the cool thing about that town, though, is it hardworking people, but it's primarily peasants. 
Um, I'm sure there are some Gentiles, you know, some non-Jewish folks that were scattered about there. Um, interesting thing, though, is they spoke Aramaic, which is kind of like a pidgin language uh, that wasn't respected, you know. And so just like, uh, you know, a guy from, uh, say, West Virginia, you know, you could, you could hear his accent and you'll know where he's from or from New York City, and everybody could tell where Jesus was from, you know, because of what he spoke and how he spoke it, I'm sure. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing, too, is they thought that that was an uneducated language and it was unrefined. So it just adds to the character or at least the perception of who Jesus was at first. You know, how could he know what he knew, but he was raised where he was and he spoke the dialect that he did. So it was perplexing for him. And I know that I missed it up until three or four weeks ago. You know, the humbleness of where he was placed and where he was going was, uh, was really interesting. Um, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think Jesus' main thing that he did was he caused a social disruption, not only from where he started, but where he was going to go. Um, and it was a disruption not only for the Jewish culture, but also for the Roman culture. I mean, if you guys know anything about the history, you know, Jewish culture has always been under a thumb, it seems. Um, and in this time frame, you know, the Romans were, were ruling everything. They answered to them. But the Jews were a little different, you know. The Romans allowed them to kind of govern themselves. I think they did have a respect for God, or at least the Jewish God. Um, so they allowed them to, to use the law, their law, on their own. They ultimately had to answer to a Roman official, but that was kind of that was sort of their, their thing. They were able to do that. Um, so being under that, that thumb, they were constantly looking for their Messiah, their Savior. You know, and I mean, you can imagine what he would look like. You know, he would be... You know, like the Jesus I first described with, you know, 6'4", you know, 200 pounds, chiseled, riding in on a big white stallion, swinging his sword, you know, dominating all those, thank you, honey, dominating all those that, that, um, that had kept the Jews under oppression, you know. And he would elevate so high that he would set the world right. And instead they got in Jesus. Um, I love, though, you know, when he started preaching. He started preaching when he was about 30 years old. Uh, Luke 4, 15 says that he taught in their synagogues and were praised by everyone. I think that's really interesting because he was praised by everyone. And everybody knows what the Greek word for everyone is. It's everyone, right? So that's really, that's the only time, though. <laughs> it's the only time. So it was a really short period of time that he was actually praised by everyone, it says. Um, so at that time, there were four Jewish religious groups, and all of them actually had to praise him, which was really interesting. They had the Zealots and the Sahedrons, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Uh, they all had many differences, you know, in, um, in their technicalities, you know, just like from... You know, assemblies of God to Baptist to Methodist to uh, Presbyterian, whatever it is, you know, there's just little little things that m- make a difference, I guess. But their basic foundation was all the same. 
Um, in the rest of that region, though, we're made up of, like I said, peasants, uh, you know, Gentiles, or Gentiles and all that. that um, but they had no social power, none at all. The Gentiles and the, and the peasants, nothing. Everything was ran by either the Zealots, the Sahedrids, the Sadducees, or the Pharisees. Um, but I think it's really cool, though, in Mark, uh, first chapter, verse 22, it said that they were amazed at his teachings. So when he started to teach, they were amazed. They were amazed that he had real authority. He taught like he had real authority, unlike the teachers of the religious law. I think that's the important part right there, unlike the teachers of the religious law, because you can see where it's going, because he's starting to challenge the authority of the people that were in charge of the Jewish laws, so the Torah. doesn't sound like much, but when you're in charge, you know, and somebody comes in and starts cutting at the root of your tree, that's a big deal, and it was a big deal. And because of that, offhanded comments starting to sprout, started to sprout up. In Luke, uh, first chapter, verse 46, it says, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? So Jesus was the Nazarene from Nazareth. They heard his teachings. He started teaching with authority. And then suddenly, the Jewish leaders started questioning where he came from. You know, and you guys can read up more on that. You know, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, he, he said that, you know, in your hometown, you know, uh, you're just not acknowledged. You know, miracles not performed. Um, no authority there. Uh, they knew him when he was a little kid, and now he's all of a sudden, you know, soon to be deemed the Christ, right? So the challenge doesn't go unnoticed by the religious reliever, uh, leaders, um, and you know what they were thinking? They were thinking this. Uh, I mean, because I would have. I'd have been like, man, if we could get him into our party, you know, if he would just come over to our side, whether he's a zealot or a Pharisee or whatever he is, we would have something. We would. We would have the guy that people are actually lining up to hear, and now he's on our side. And maybe he really is the Messiah. Maybe he is going to conquer the Romans. Give us back our land so we don't have to pay taxes and fall under all the Roman laws that they had. And that's what I'm sure they were thinking. And they probably even had hope in that until one sermon. And it's one of my favorite sermons. Um, and it's the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I want to read that with you guys. It's, we're not going to read uh, Matthew, so we're going to read Luke 6. 20 through 26. Because this is where Jesus divides. This is where he conquers. Uh, It starts out, it says, God blesses you who are poor, and the kingdom of God will be given to you. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now, for the time will come when you will laugh with joy. God blesses you who are hated and excluded and mocked and cursed because you are identified with me, the Son of Man. When that happens, rejoice. Yes, leap for joy, for great rewards await you in heaven. And remember, the the ancient prophets were also treated that way by your ancestors. 
So he's separating it. It's like the chafe, you know, with the wheat, shaking it out, you know, or the sand, like I used in one illustration, you know, being a mason, you know, the finer the sand, the better the mortar, the easier it is to work with, right? It's the same thing. So, you know, this turns the world on, on edge because now he's saying the poor are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Well, what about all the religious leaders? You know, they're all fat and sassy, right? They were the ones that were using God's word, the Torah. They were the ones that were directing all of God's word. And now Jesus comes and he says, the poor are going to be rewarded. The people that are mourning are going to be rewarded. The people that are being martyred and made fun of and mocked are going to be rewarded. Well, all those things, they didn't apply to him. But wait do you hear what did apply to him. It says, what sorrow awaits you who are rich? For you only have happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are satisfied and prosperous now for a time of awful hunger is before you? What sorrow awaits you who, are, who laugh carelessly? For your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow. And what sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds? For your ancestors also praised the false prophets. I mean, think about what they thought right there. I mean, it's just an amazing thing, you know. I mean, he just grouped all the religious leaders and told them that, you know, they they were going to, they had great sorrows that awaited the rich, the satisfied, the prosperous, the careless, laughter, laughers, those who were praised by the crowds. And I'm sure they would have been thinking what I would have thought. This will not do. Nobody has taken my company. You know, you heard of hostile takeovers, right? Nobody's taken my company. It's not going to happen, right? I mean, that's what they had to be thinking. And then I'm sure they lost all hope that Jesus was going to come over to their side. You know, but what did it do for everybody else? It gave everyone else hope. It gave everyone else value and worth. I mean, just an amazing thing that he did there. But he also caused people to hate him, to want to torture him, to want to get rid of him. And I, I made a, a little note here that he placed all those below us. So, so all, the, all, the, all the zealots, they had to be thinking, man, he just, he just, all those people that are placed below us are now raised above us. And that really gave me a good identity, a good visual on how I could really see that and see what they had to be going through, you know. Um, But I really love it, though, that Jesus was just getting started, though. You know, he could have just left it at that. But no, no, he's not going to do that. What he did was he he shaped a society. You know, he was going to change humanity. And he already did, sort of, but he was going to complete it. And I love what he uses, though. He uses sermons and he uses parables and he uses miracles. He uses things that people can, can see as relevant things, amazing things. And I love how he does it because he does it through the poor, through the desolate, through the, through the beat down. Um, he doesn't use the high and mighty that are on earth. He doesn't use them. He uses the ones that are thought of as low. And I'm going to go over three different things for you guys here. And these are the ones that God really put on my heart to share first one is is children. What did Jesus think about children, you know? Dedicated a baby today. 
right? Um, you know, Matthew 19, uh, verse 13 through 15. I'm only going to read 14, but it says, uh, Jesus said, let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. You know, you can, you can cruise through the Bible at a real slow speed and try to gather everything, or you can skim it over. I'm a skimmer sometimes, right? I can go right over it and miss the point. Children at that time throughout the world were, had no identity, no value really, especially if you were a woman, if you were a girl. Um, the common practice back then, especially in Rome, with Rome, they would either uh, abort girls um, or if a baby had any, any um, deformity, uh, they would kill the babies. Um, or it was just unwanted pregnancy. So there wasn't much of a value placed on it. But their most common thing they did was they, they actually they, they had exposure walls. So you can imagine like a wall like this in one location. And what they would do is they would take the babies that they didn't want. And then they would take them and they'd place them on a, on a wall, on an exposure wall. And they call them exposure wall because that's what they would die of. You know, exposure can be grouped in a lot of things from hypothermia to starvation to heat stroke to, to just plain getting sick and just dying. You know, you can imagine dying from hunger, a little baby, and the crying that had to take place with all that. I mean, just amazing. But the crazy thing is, is they just couldn't just throw out the baby with the bathwater, right? So they actually took time to put these babies that they let die from exposure into like uh, like clay jars and they would you know now they find burial sites where there's just baby upon baby upon baby just stacks and stacks and stacks of all these babies that were died at these exposure walls but Jesus changed all that he gave children worth I think this was the first guy to fight abortion you know just because he said let them come to me for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these that's a powerful statement. But it's really easy just to skim over that. Really easy. And let's look at women. I mean, uh, how about John 2, verse 2 through 8? I'm not going to read it, but it's Jesus' first miracle. You know, his mom, his mother suggested that he turn wine or water into wine at a party. The fact that Jesus acknowledged women back in those days fact that they were written about, that he performed miracles on them, that he allowed them to touch him, uh, you know, whether it was washing their feet, his feet, I should say, that he cared for them, that he placed a value upon them, that he sowed into the new culture, the Christian culture, the value that we place on women. You know, all through these things, God's trying to reveal a character that has never been revealed before, a character that had been forgotten. You know, I have a note in here that says, it says that, um, you know, the Romans and the Jewish leaders were worried about a mob riot. But Jesus wanted to cause a riot, but it was a heart riot. And he did these through children, through women. He did these through diseased, through lepers, you know. I, this is this is one of my favorite scriptures, um, and it's it's uh, Matthew eight verse one through four. 
And I'm going to read it and then I'm going to kind of talk about it. You know, it says large crowds followed Jesus as he came down the mountainside. Suddenly, a man with leprosy approached Jesus. It would be really hard for me to think that suddenly he could. Because a man with leprosy, first of all, had a few things that he had to always do. Number one, he, you know, he, was, he, had to, he had to live in a leper colony, so he was away from everybody, right? And then when he did come out, he always had to have uh, clothes of mourning on. So I assume it was probably sack clothing, you know. Maybe ash to cover the leprosy. I don't know what, it, what he had to wear other, or what it looked like, but it, was, but it was made to identify and distinguish who he was. But not only did he have to do that, um, when he got within six foot of anybody, he had to yell, unclean. So I would have to yell as I was going to buy my food, unclean, unclean. And everybody would stay away from him. I mean, that's, that's just a powerful thing, right? So that he would suddenly appear and actually be able to do these things. It's just amazing. So he suddenly appears in, and uh, he says, he kneels before him, worshiping. He says, Lord, the man said, if you want to, you can make me well again. And then Jesus touched him. And he said, I want to. And he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. And Jesus said to him, go right over to the priest and let him examine you. Don't talk to anyone along the way. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed by leprosy so everyone will have proof of your healing." So if you missed it, he touched him. You know, I mean, think about the AIDS, you know, the AIDS disease. And how many people go without love because people are afraid to touch them. So I want to talk to you guys about leprosy right now, what it looks like today. And there's a great story. Um, there's a doctor, you know, he's over in Africa. And, you know, there's still leper colonies, still people that live with that. And this guy, that's what his specialty is, this doctor's specialty is leprosy. So the leper, uh, leper comes in, and he's got an interpreter, and he's talking, you know. And, he, and the guy's had leprosy for a short time, and, you know, he's going over everything. Now, leprosy is really an interesting thing because it's a disease that, you know, contagious, obviously, but also deforms your skin, eats away at your skin, but it also kills all your nerve endings. So as it's getting worse and worse, you can't feel it. Right, so you, you can, you know, think you got an itch, and you itch and itch, and then the infection spreads to that spot, and you just, you just can't, you're numb to it, right? So he's going over all these things. He says, you know, as this gets worse, you know, this is what's going to happen, and he's going over all in all. And as he, as the doctors talk to him, he's talking to him, he's looking him right in the eye, and he's got his hands on his shoulder, and he's just talking to him, he's talking to him, and he gets done and. The interpreter keeps talking, and the guy just starts weeping. He's just crying, and he's crying, and he's crying. And he just figures, well, it's because, you know, he knows that this is something that's incurable. So the interpreter says, are you okay? And he says, yeah. He says, that's the first time anybody's touched me in three years. And Jesus touched this leper. So imagine it, you guys as the leper. When you get saved, that's what it feels like. It feels like that somebody finally touched you and loves you. And that's what Jesus did. That's how he changed humanity. He is that real that he touches you and you're healed. And it might not be physically, 
But that hole that he places in your heart is real. And in an instant, he heals. And that was probably the most dramatic thing that I really got out of my study was that. Was he takes a leper that yells, unclean, unclean. He might as well be saying, unworthy. Nobody loves me. Nobody talks to me. Everyone despises me. They can't stand the sight of me. I'm put up on a pedestal because of how awful I am. But the pedestal isn't high, it's low. So at all these different healings and these teachings and these sermons, you know, what I really love is there was always a Pharisee there. You know, he's kind of always heckling, always in the background, you know. Really interesting. He's always building a case against Jesus, right? He's trying to trap him, trap him with a question. Usually a pointed, direct question. Um, And it was evident that they were getting more and more agitated with Jesus. More and more hateful. More and more bold with what they were calling for. Um, And who could blame them? You know, I mean, he called them a brood of snakes, right? He said that they love the law, but not people. I mean... These guys were in charge of people, you know, in charge of the law. Um, I love that Jesus was demanded by them to perform miracles, to heal people, right? To prove his divinity. But he wasn't going to jump through hoops for him. I think he proved something else that instead of, he proved divinity by not doing it. And I think he came to realize this, you know, that, that you know, he, uh, he healed a, a Roman's slave with just a word, right? Um, he heals the blind, the lame, the sick. Uh, he touches a woman and she stops bleeding for the first time in her life, right? The lepers that he healed. He feeds the thousands. The wine from water. But a zealot, a Pharisee, a Sadducee, they asked for a miracle. And he says, no. Nope, not going to do it. Can you imagine how that had to just infuriate him? But this is what God was teaching me. It says just that faith can produce miracles. You know, that's what the Word of God says, right? Your faith can produce miracles. But how many of you guys know this, that miracles very rarely produce faith? You have to have something first in order to appreciate the miracle that's before. I mean, especially, say, a doctor. A doctor sees one thing, and then a person comes in and gets another x-ray, and it's different. And he can see it's the same body, but that stuff that was there is not there. But that doesn't further his faith if he's not a believer. I mean, it doesn't. So it falls on deaf ears. And I think that's why Jesus did not do that with the zealots, with the Sadducees, with the Pharisees. But he doesn't stop there. Instead, he just charges forward. And I love where he goes with it, too. He takes the sacred Sabbath. (laughs) 
And then he defiles it, right? I mean, people were stoned to death over this. You know, you weren't allowed to work. No. No, They had just a list of everything that you couldn't do, and he did it. Um, And, you know, that's in Mark uh, 2, 25 through 28. And I'll I'll read a little shortened version of it. Jesus retaliates after the Pharisees accuse him. And he says, haven't you ever read the scriptures? What King David did when he and his companions were hungry. They went to the house of God and ate the special bread reserved only for the priest. And then they gave some of it to his companions. That was breaking the law too. Then he said to him, the Sabbath was made to benefit people and not people to benefit the Sabbath. So he started to slap him, right? But then he just, this is the dagger. And he says, and I, the son of man, am the master even of the Sabbath. You could skim over that, but you know what he just said? In a short declaration, he just said that he was God. He was master of the Sabbath, of the day that they held so dear, so tight, that their law was built around. I mean, that, that's just amazing. Right there, he said that he had the authority to heal, to forgive, to pardon. He had the authority to teach, control nature. All in God's name because he was God. I mean, that's where it started. That's why they hated him. Now he completely, for them, it was blasphemy. And you know where the story's going. I mean, you know where it's going to end. I like to say where it's going to begin, though. So the question that screamed out to me all during this, this last three weeks was why? know and God gives me an answer and it's why not you know I, I sometimes I, I want God to show me a sign you know to explain the why but I think it's really interesting that you know a sign isn't the same thing as proof A sign is just a marker. If you're pointed in the right direction and you're looking for it, you're going to see it. You know? Um, And something I wrote down here just in my little side notes is this. To understand his love is to understand that you can't. That's why it's hard for me to pray what you prayed, Keith. Keith. Because to understand his love is scary. I mean, he he turned his own people against him. Because they couldn't see the love that he had for them. And then we have to try to figure out how much he loves us. You know? And he says that's all we have to do is love him to accept Christ as our Savior. And we are saved that you knock at the door and it will be open for you. And to understand his true love is to realize that you just can't. I try to figure stuff out. You guys probably already figured that out. I try to understand it completely and I just, I just can't. 
So when somebody's beaten and tortured and bruised, I know there's a reason why. And that I can understand. And that's where God led me. Next week I get to speak again to you guys. We're going to talk about um, Palm Sunday. You know, when everybody is a kid, you know, whoever grew up in church, you know, because remember, <laughs> throwing around the palm leaves, right? I do. But I'm going to leave you guys with, a, with, a, with just a word that, that was given to me, you know. Next week we get, to, we get to see that God made something that was irreversible, and he made it reversible. So this week, you know, God's word says that you're to meditate on it, right? So meditate on that word, reversible, and what it means. You know, and how he sent his son and how he made something that was irreversible and he made it reversible. And we're going to run that video, but we're going to see the entire video right now. I cut it short because I wanted you guys to see what he did for you. And then uh, the guys are going to come up and play one last one last song. And I encourage you guys to, to dive in deep with this. To put yourself in. You know, I love God's word as a walking testimony. And it has to be alive. Because it, it is. And it has to mean something to you. Because it does. And you're, you're invested with people all around you that need to know Christ's love through your actions more than your words but when you're when you're supposed to speak you need to be armed and prepared don't skim over it I did that for too many years